0: Well, if you would today, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, um, we'll begin in verse uh, 3 today um, with what we're calling Hannah's Sorrow. Now, as we move into the second week of this study, um, there's maybe a verse or two that um, kind of helps remind us uh, of where we're at in the history of the nation of Israel the spiritual atmosphere of the nation, um, you might say, as the story of Samuel's birth unfolds. Um, Hopefully you remember Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, That kind of tells us everything we need to know about where Israel is spiritually, Um, but also um, a verse from last week um, reminds us of kind of the setting, and again, if if you missed last week's message, this kind of helps you get caught up a little bit. Um, Verse 2. Elkaniah is the he. He had two wives. Uh, The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Um, This is telling us about Samuel's family. Um, We're going to look more closely at the family dynamics uh, today, Um, but probably the key detail there um, that informs our text for this morning is that Hannah was apparently barren. Um, She could not have children. And as we discussed kind of briefly last week, that immediately puts her in the footsteps. Um, of quite a few very notable women um, in Scripture. Um, Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, or Abraham's wife eventually as he's renamed, um, had borne him no children. We see that in Exodus 16.1, um, Genesis, or Genesis 16.1. Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, um, she envied her sister. Uh, two very important names in the history of the nation of Israel there. Um, obviously, there are New Testament names as well. Elizabeth, Mary, Mary. Um, as those, well, Mary wasn't really barren, but that's a whole other story. Um, We'll get to that. Um, But today we're going to look more closely at Hannah's sorrow and her shared pain um, with Sarah, Rachel, and others. But I I think in the big picture, not just uh, about women who are struggling to have a child, um, all of us Um, have issues and things that we need um, God to show up on, and and it's curious how God often did things in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, Pastor Warren Wiersbe has uh, wisely put it this way, as he often did in Israel's history, God began to solve the problem by sending a baby. Uh, The nation of Israel was at a crossroads as we begin this book, Um, spiritually, politically, you name it. Um, In Israel's past I think you could say that the birth of Moses um, was a significant uh, sea change in, in Israel's future. It was a profound change for them. Samuel's arrival kind of mirrors that pattern, um, as will uh, again in the New Testament the uh, the birth of John the Baptist um, and then Jesus ultimately um, where this is going. The, these birth narratives, if you're not catching on, um, tend to be very very important in the Word of God, but also in the plan of God for Israel. Um, and subsequently, I believe uh, the world itself. God does something special through the birth of a child, um, and in a world that doesn't value children very much. I think that's notable, and it happens over and over and over again in God's word. Now, enough said. Let's look at our text for today. If you would stand with me out of reverence respect the word of God. Let's read First um, Samuel chapter one um, verses three through eight verse 3 now this man that is Elkaniah as we saw last week this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord on the day when Elkaniah sacrificed he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife and to all her sons and daughters but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb Now, we start with something that is a, a little out of place um, for the, the state of the nation of Israel at the time. We're going to call it allegiance. Um, you see it in verse 3. Uh, again, Elkaniah. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, um, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. In a nation adrift spiritually, we have to notice that Elkaniah is faithfully practicing worship of God. Um, That's the simplest reading there. And and it's done year by year. Um, And so at a minimum, uh, this was an annual pilgrimage that he undertook with his family. Now, certainly if you remember last week, we established he's a polygamist, um, which tells us he's not exactly in in the middle of God's will with all of his life. He's not a perfect rule follower. um, But I, I think we have to give him his credit here. Um, Shiloh uh, had hosted the tent of meeting since the days of Joshua. You know, the tent of meeting, uh, also known as the tabernacle, eventually um, becomes the temple. Um, so it was the rightful place for a worshiper of Jehovah um, to bring his tithes and his offerings, certainly on an annual basis, but really more frequently than that. All the Israelite men, under the old covenant, under the old law, um, were supposed to appear um, before the Lord um, at the tent of meeting or the tabernacle um, multiple times. Throughout the year. Uh, now we've got to know because of what Judges has told us about how uh, the nation of Israel was sliding into apostasy. We've got to know that most of the families were not doing this, but they should have been. Um, Deuteronomy 16 16, three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. And uh, that was typically the tabernacle, uh, eventually the temple. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, um, at the Feast of Booths, um, these shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. These were three significant festivals or remembrances in the history of the nation of Israel of what God had done for them in the past. They were supposed to go and worship on those dates. Most speculate that this text... Um, This journey recorded here coincided with the Feast of Booths, um, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, But regardless of which observance it was, or or even if it was just an annual family trip or or clan gathering at the tabernacle, it it indicates faith in Jehovah. And we've got to give Elkaniah credit for that. It was certainly more than the average Israelite was reputed to be doing at the same time. And he's taking his entire family with him, as we'll see, which would tend to indicate that he's at least trying to pass his faith down and this practice of worship down to the next generation. Okay? So again, that's good. And so here we are in the midst of a broken culture. Um, we studied that in Titus, kind of. Um, he's at least attempting to worship God as required by the Old Covenant and to please God, at least in this way. So in that sense, he's, he's doing good works as Titus challenged us to do in, in a broken culture. So let's give him that, alright? Now, uh, the text adds a curious little note here at the end of verse 3, which, if we were to read ahead, I think would make us feel even better about Elkaniah. It says in, in um, the end of verse 3 Shiloh, in the city of Shiloh where the sons, the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. Uh, Eli was the practicing high priest at the time sort of serving in the role of judge for the nation although I wouldn't really call him that he's of the line of Aaron though he's the high priest, Um, his sons are serving um, as uh, priests under his leadership. Uh, Eli is a bit of a complicated man Uh, Maybe a a bit like uh, Elkaniah. He has a reverence for the Lord, but he also has uh, a blind spot regarding the wickedness of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, They're not model priests, to say the least. Uh, I don't want to give everything away because we're going to look at them in uh, in greater detail in the next few weeks, but uh, they were profane, uh, they were selfish, they were arrogant bullies, to be blunt, all right? And, And I have to believe that Elkaniah went to worship the Lord despite them. Whatever he does in Shiloh, involving the tabernacle and the rendering of offerings and worship of God is going to have to be run through them. And they're jerks, to put it bluntly. And so he's going to have to put up with them, all right? And so they're not really God's poster boys of the priesthood. And so I think, again, we kind of have to give him credit that despite their um, brokenness and, and, and all the issues we'll see with them, he's still willing to go and he's still willing to worship um he presses on and kind of endures um their issues and so even as we meet uh, these two rascals for the first time, I think it's also worth admitting, maybe it's worth drawing a little satisfaction that, that we know ultimately the book of First Samuel is about Samuel replacing them as the spiritual leaders of the nation. So we know there's some good coming in all of this. Uh, but um, just more context there. Last thing we should point out that I just don't want to miss. Um, a good thing in this scripture is in 1 Samuel 1-3, um, this man used to go up year by year. Um, um, or go up by year from a city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. It's the first time that phrase is used to describe uh, our God, Jehovah God, in God's word. Um, it's going to appear frequently in the book of Psalms, even in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. Um, and I think it's a beautiful way of exalting God. Um, host, um, can refer to numerous things or entities in Scripture. Uh, in some cases, based on context, when it talks about the Lord of hosts, it's referring to angelic beings. And in some cases, it's referring to armies. Uh, I think in this context, it's probably um, simply reminding us that He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is the commander um, of the armies of Israel. He is the nation's strength, He is the nation's protector, which subsequently means He is sovereign he's in control. Uh, He's got it all in his hands, and that's kind of, I believe, the overall thing we're supposed to take um, from what we see in Hannah's life at this time regardless it's a very beautiful exalting title um, for Jehovah God even while we're studying by the way a worshiping polygamist um, and we see uh, the names of two of the most despicable priests in scripture in Hopney and Phineas. and I think it's a reminder to us by the way um, that there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a sin problem there's not a person in this room who couldn't at one time or the other be called a hypocrite um, by somebody else here's the reality don't let the failures of men and women arise Around you, prevent you from coming and worshiping the Lord of Hosts. Um, we we are not uh, capable of saving others or any of those things. We come on Sunday mornings to worship God, um, and don't let people get between you and Him. And at least Elkaniah appears to be doing that, um, but on to the next thing that we see about uh, Hannah and Elkaniah. We see affection here, um, verses 4 and 5. On the day when Elkaniah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Um, But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, um, though the Lord had closed her womb. Um, Simplest reading of this text would... cause us to infer, I believe, that Elkaniah was offering the Lord um, what the Old Testament calls a a peace offering, um, following the practice of Leviticus 7. Um, Leviticus 7, verse 11 says, "And This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If you wanted to read the next 25 verses of that chapter of Leviticus, you would see all the ins and outs of of how to properly render a peace offering to God. Let me just kind of sum it up this way um, for us this morning. Um, in, In offering a peace offering, at the tabernacle or eventually the temple, um, what was done is there was an animal sacrificed, and a portion of that animal um, was uh, designated to the Lord, and it was rent, rendered as a burnt offering. Okay, It was consumed on the altar as a sacrifice to God. A portion of that animal was given to the priest as a part of their sustenance um, for them to eat and, and as a provision for them in their service to the Lord. And a third portion, uh, the third quarter or third portion, um, the third, uh, a third. Okay, there's only three thirds, not four quarters. Anyway, um, one of the thirds was then used as the family that brought the sacrifice as a as a meal. Um, it was it was cooked and it was consumed by them as an act of worship. Okay, that's the best way to see this. Um, the last portion we're talking about is undoubtedly what we see Elkanah distributing among his family. Okay, the peace offering led to a family meal that was a part of their worship time. Now, the distribution of these portions, though, uh, tells us some crucial things about the family dynamics. Uh, first of all, we're reminded that Elkaniah, uh, indeed, he has two wives. And it's worth repeating that this practice is not God's plan for marriage. Okay, I know our culture is absolutely confused when it comes to marriage, um, but God's Word is consistent throughout. Okay, uh, Genesis 2, 24, if you were here for that study, we talked about the priority of first things. This is the first time God talks about marriage, and this is the, the not just the pattern, but it is the plan. It is the only thing He will Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. All right? So obviously uh, you can infer from this that God does not bless polygamy, multiple wives. You, you can't have the concept of one man and one woman becoming um, one flesh if there's multiple spouses. Okay? It just doesn't work. Now, of course, it's also worth saying in our culture today that he's also affirming gender. You see that? one man, one woman. Um, and, and I know our world is kind of confused and I'm not trying to you know, step on anybody's toes, but God's word is explicitly clear that he makes us male and female and how marriage is supposed to work certainly. Jesus affirmed this explicitly. I know those, there are those who will say, well that's what Genesis said, but the New Testament doesn't say that. Yeah, actually the New Testament does say that, but from the beginning of creation, meaning God put down a rule and a pattern um, from the very earliest scripture and jesus affirms it god made them male and female therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one what therefore god has joined together let no man separate so that's jesus uh, affirming in one fell swoop i believe um that marriage is for one man and one woman for a lifetime he's saying no divorce um, he's saying no homosexual marriage it's a man and a woman and he's saying no polygamy it's very very clear I know our culture is confused, but God's word is very clear. Now, in context, the text also reminds us, I believe, of why Elkaniah um, has multiplied wives. Um, It tells us that he distributes portions to Penaniah and her children. It says sons and daughters, so that implies there's at least four children that have been born to her. Multiple sons, multiple daughters. Four at minimum, okay? Um, and, And only one portion to Hannah because Hannah does not have a child to accompany her. All right? And um, certainly the way the text reads would indicate that Hannah was the first wife. Um, she has no children, so she is barren. I think simplest, he wants heirs. He's like most Israelites. He's hopeful of having a son um, to follow in his stead. And so he marries a second wife and she produces heirs for him. Um, that's the simplest way to read this. Now again, it doesn't justify it, but I think that's what he has done. Now, Um, It also tells us, by the way, that Penn and I has been around a while. Okay? Um, you know, I'm not an expert on you know, birth and conception and all those things, but I know it takes generally, you know, nine months plus a little uh, to conceive a child and bear a child. So if she has at least four children, it means Hannah has been living with Penaniah in the household for almost four full years at minimum. Okay? Could be longer. The point of that is just this this isn't a one time thing. Hannah has been dealing with this situation for a while now All right. Um, And and so here we are in the middle of this text. We have this strange contradiction almost of a somewhat faithful man to the Lord traveling to worship God with his family, but even in the sacrifice and the observance of his peace offering, he's sinning before the Lord. I mean, he's saying, Here's my first wife, Hannah, here's your portion. Um, Here's my second wife, Penaniah, and here's a portion for you, and a portion for your kid, and your other kid, and your other kid, and your other kid. He's basically confessing polygamy. while worshiping God. That's what's happening. And it's kind of worth saying there's no way to do a wrong thing the right way. All right? And we can't miss this. Maybe we give Elkaniah credit. He's at least at church. He's worshiping God, so to speak. And he's providing for Penaniah and his children, which was now his responsibility. But it's also clear in the text that his heart still belongs primarily to Hannah verse 5 but to hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her though the lord had closed her womb now i think it's worth saying most women would not find your declaration that you love them to be very sound if you're cheating on them with another woman anybody follow my logic on that you know oh hannah i love you um here meet my second wife anyway um you're gonna to have to be real this morning because the rest of this text is pretty real all right um, but that's what's happening all right uh, but he loved her and he gives her uh, what is called a double portion really it's probably best understood um it's rendered in some text as a worthy portion um it's kind of like she gets a choice cut of whatever meat is left there the, those those step kids get flank steak but she gets a ribeye you know that's the best way i, I would describe it um Anyway, maybe you prefer filet, whatever your choice is. But she's getting a worthy portion because Elkaniah had a deep affection for her despite her barrenness. And it even seems to imply, uh, again, um, literally reading this, that God has done uh, something um, to close her womb, or at least that's what Elkaniah has chosen to believe. Um, He's attributed her barrenness um, to the will of God, and he's not holding her at fault. There's no blame being cast on her, so to speak. He He loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. Um, I think in a good sense, it's implying that he's, he's wrestled with God's sovereignty. He's come to peace uh, with this. Of course, he's added a wife, so I guess that's one way out. Anyway, um, I, I think there is a lesson here, though, that when you're in a tough situation, when life hasn't gone the way you want it to be, um, when you've been crying out for something and God has not come through the way you want, uh, the reality is you're, you're in a place, even when you're suffering, where you need to learn to trust and rest in God, because God still sees, He still loves you. Uh, Romans 8:28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And that means even those things you don't understand, even those things you don't appreciate, even those things that are painful, God can work out for His good and for, for His glory and even for your good. In Scripture, it's important that we note uh, the truth of these statements when we think about barrenness. Um, It's really not coincidental how many times God's Word tells us uh, about a woman who was struggling to conceive a child, and and she was in misery um, because of her inability to do so. And we see a pattern in Scripture that typically, not all the time, there's no guarantee, but God does see, and and He reverses those circumstances a lot. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, just to name a few, okay? And, And it's a reminder, I think, because we see that over and over and over again, is that God sees them. He loves them. He has compassion for them. He sees them in their pain. Um, And in almost every one of those cases, by the way, the child that's eventually conceived and born is extraordinarily significant in the plan of God by the way. Okay? They may have had to wait a long time. It may have been really, really hard. But when God does show up He does something extraordinary. And that's worth us remembering and kind of clinging to in the hard times. Now, in this text we don't see the good news yet. Um, God's deliverance is not quite on the horizon um, so next what we see is just the continued pain of Hannah as she deals with her barrenness all right? and it's quite possible that this annual pilgrimage to worship God is actually making things worse to be honest with you um, we see aggravation next and her rival, um, and you don't need to understand Hebrew to get where, uh, what this means and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her She's a jerk, is what it's telling you, okay? Um, Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Hannah wept and would not eat. So again, a, a literal reading of the text would tell us, year by year, as they went on this annual pilgrimage, um, P- Penaniah's antagonism of Hannah um, was always steady. Um, and in somehow, this trip to the Lord or the house of the Lord to worship seemed to punctuate it. As this annual worship time um, became a part of the pain. I mean, no one here is... Ever argues on the way to church, right? You know, Um, it seems it's almost a pattern sometimes. I think this is what Satan likes to do. And when you think about it, when you when you're very real about this text, here you have a situation where there's been um, some ungodly behavior. You've got polygamy, a multiplying of wives. Maybe in our culture we don't have that as much as we have um, divorce. Well, what happens when you have an annual family event like Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter? Well, it tends to be that those are the times when the Of divorce, kind of, are used by the enemy. I think to prod um, because you've got to figure out where the kids are going to go and who they're going to be with and how it's going to all work out. It becomes a a happy time, a celebratory time, even a time of worship to the Lord. Actually, becomes a part of the pain, and that's what we see in this text. Because there's just no good way, uh, there's no right way to do a wrong thing. Now, if if we unpack. The, the literal understanding of how this peace offering was divided up, I think we understand why this time was so hard. Um, Elkaniah, again, is, is handing out portions of the offering uh, as a part of their meal. Um, Penaniah, um, she gets her portion, and then each kid gets their portion, and it takes Elkaniah a long time to serve them, and then there's just one portion left for little old Hannah sitting by herself. I think you can see how that would um, make, it would vividly remind her in front of the whole family of her inadequacy. And I, I think that's the way we should read this. Um, and also just going to the worship of the Lord at the tabernacle um, would have been a, a time, I think, where she couldn't escape her rival. We know the way they would have had to have traveled and, and camped and all those things, and it would have been a difficult time. And, Pen and I is making hay with that time. She's provoking her grievously to irritate her. I don't think it's hard to imagine the kinds of things that she would be saying. Um, If God really loved you, you'd have a kid by now. Would be an easy uh, thing to infer. If you just confess your sin, I'm sure there's something you're doing wrong. If you would confess your sin, then God would open your womb. She's probably reading the book of Job and and taking a a playbook from those three friends. That were wrong, by the way, but that's often how our world thinks. If, If something's not going right, then you must be living in sin we all have a sin problem by the way we've established that but not every bad thing that happens in our lives is attributable to something directly that we've sinned about certainly there's nothing in this text that would ever indicate that hannah had done anything to deserve barrenness maybe she says how how can you be sure Elkaniah loves you at all because i'm the one with all the kids Um, What kind of future does a childless woman have in Israel? It's not hard um, to put yourself into the text and think of things that Penaniah was saying to kind of twist the knife, but we got to know it was ugly. And since Penaniah, by the way, had given birth to multiple children, it's undeniably obvious that the issue was with Hannah, not Epconiah. Elkaniah is capable of fathering children, clearly. So Hannah's the issue. And, and what I, I think the takeaway, what we have to understand is these are the kinds of situations that Satan thrives in in making uh, the saints suffer through lies and misery. Uh, there's always some Penaniah just waiting to twist the knife and, and to make things harder and harder and harder. Um, and we still see the same kind of questions asked today, you know, about sin in our life, God's judgment when hard times comes in someone's life. And let's be honest, this was a, a, a time when going up to worship God actually seemed to make the problem worse. Sometimes coming to church can be that way. It can be a, a part of the pain. Um, if, if you're a woman struggling with barrenness, um, coming to church can be a brave, brave thing because let's admit it, Here's a place where we have a, a, a busy nursery. We have a preschool department that's bustling. We put 511 up in the, on the screen in the first service because there was a need to care for the children back there. And we're constantly having baby showers. Young adult classes are always talking about children and parenting and all the things that go with it. It's not the same as having a bitter rival like Penn and I intentionally taunt you. But let's be honest, it's not easy all the same if you're in the same situation. And, and I would imagine that it can give way to questions about your femininity, uh, your, your value as a wife, as a woman, things that cut to the very core um, of your lifelong hopes and dreams. We've got to see that. And I know me speaking about this right now probably doesn't help, um, but it's the, the context of the passage that I think we have to understand. The point we're to see is that God is aware of all this. Hannah is one of the most significant individuals in all of the Old Testament. And um, God sees her. God knows what's happening. He has a plan in her barrenness. And we've got to admit, uh, he may have authored even the barrenness, but he has a plan that he's working out through it. There's no indication this was punishment or judgment. It's just a part of her journey. And one of the things we have to know about life is that maturity is always married to time. Most of us don't learn anything in 10 seconds. But you know what? When you suffer with barrenness like this situation and it plays out over three, four, five years, we're not sure how long it's been, but we know it's got to be at least that long. You begin to figure out, do I trust God? Do I believe in God? Do I rest in the fact that he's got it or do I not? So hear me, ladies but also everyone else that has some issue in their life that you want resolved and it's just not getting fixed and, and you can't wave a magic wand and make it go away. Whatever your struggle, whatever your pain, your inadequacy, there's no doubt that Satan wants to exploit it and, and make you bitter toward God and your circumstances and, and maybe even Elkaniah or whoever it is in your life that's contributing to it. But we must rest in the fact that God sees us, that he, that he knows, that he has a plan, even if it's not the miraculous conception of a child. All of his saints have a future and a hope. And the reality is this life is fleeting too, so the bulk of his goodness and his greatness will come in eternity future. And all this is ultimately, if we're being honest about it, a picture of the gospel. All of this puts our earthly struggles, I believe, in perspective. From a gospel perspective, every single one of us has a spiritual problem that we can't fix we have a need um, that there's nothing we can do about it and and it's the greatest need you can possibly have we we are sinners in need of a savior god is holy and he is just and he cannot have a relationship with a sinner and so in steps jesus christ to fully finally make things right he he died a a brutal death to atone for us uh, to redeem us to restore us to an intimate relationship with god and there's nothing you can do to earn it there's nothing you can do to deserve it it's just a grace gift that's been offered to you. All you can really choose to do, I believe, is yield to it. Accept what Jesus Christ is offering you. Understand first your need. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But understand also that there's there's nothing we can do outside of the blood of Jesus to atone for that sin. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I've read the Titus 2 passage multiple times. I want to do it one more time. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. It says, For the grace of God, that's Jesus is the grace of God, epitomized in this text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's the truth of the gospel. And if God has a plan, and he does, in the midst of our sin and our, su- our suffering, if he can make a way for us in filling our need for a savior, he can make a way for us when life has dealt us a bum deck and, and, and we're dealing with hardships. Even our cancers, our, our barrenness, our loss of a child or a loved one in an accident, what I'm telling you is he clearly sees and he knows and he cares. And we should, I think, respond in those moments by pouring our heart out in prayer. And we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. That's what Hannah does. And pour our heart out to him in prayer, knowing that he brings supernatural provision. Um, and sometimes he does something uh, beyond what we could possibly imagine. We see that in in Luke chapter 1. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth were praying praying to god for a child it says and your prayer has been heard and your wife elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name john and look at the last portion of this and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth there are times in our life when god shows up something extraordinary happens and we just have to give him the glory and in those moments we we worship and we praise and we celebrate but unfortunately we're not there yet in this text Hannah is stuck in a vice and her pain is great and so next we come to agony in verse 7 therefore Hannah wept and would not eat now, admirably, we, we never get any indication that she fought back against her rival. Um, she doesn't trade insult for insult or barb for barb, although that would have been probably pretty easy um, to do. There's some names I can readily think of for Penaniah, probably. Um, at this point, Hannah, in the book of First Samuel, is the most Christ-like figure we've seen. Um, Elkaniah's got his issues. Eli's got his issues. Hopfi and Phinehas have big issues, as we'll see soon. And... Um, uh, Hannah seems to have a sincere reverence and love for the Lord, and yes, she's hurting, but she never lashes out. Uh, she epitomizes a uh, principle Jesus taught in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him or the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We don't see her do anything in response to Penaniah, although she's certainly, I think, almost physically ill. Um, she cannot eat at this worship ceremony. It'd be like skipping Thanksgiving dinner with the family. I I think we're to assume um, that despite her pain, though, she's learning how to trust the Lord with her hurt. Um, And again, I think it's far greater than even we might imagine in our culture today. Um, one, we do not esteem children at all. Um, the Israelites, the Jews certainly did. I think we're supposed to. Um, Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But also every, every good Israelite had this hope that if they had a son, he might be the Messiah um, who would save the nation, so to speak. Um, and so all those dreams are up in the air, and that's why she's hurting. And what we'll see, particularly next week, is she turns, um, even to where we sang and worship this morning, she turns to prayer. Um, which is all she had left, is where she should turn. I don't think Elkaniah is a good um, confidant, and uh, Eli is certainly not as the high priest, and, and everyone's kind of letting her down. She turns to God. Um, James five sixteen. Therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working not to teach prayer class but it's not saying you have to be sinless to come before God in prayer but I, I do think it's a simple principle that you need to want what God wants and when you, when you want His will when you surrender to what He's doing um, and you're as best as you can walking in rightness with him the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working uh, luke 11:10. for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open um, everywhere in scripture prayer is exalted and so we probably don't preach or teach or practice prayer enough as a people of god And yet there's this tension. You come to the the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus and his suffering. He came to that place, he said to them, the disciples, I mean, they had Jesus with them, and yet Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we know the value of prayer. But speaking of the Garden of Gethsemane, we also know how we should wrestle with God regarding our hurts and the things we don't understand. Remember what Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done he submitted to the will of the father he prayed for what he wanted but he was trusting God to do what was best and right and he was surrendered to God to that and I, I believe that's what we see in Hannah she's wrestling with the will of God she deeply desired a child she's hurting under the weight of her circumstances and the taunts of her rival but we never see her grow angry at God um, or cast blame she's resting in his sovereign plan even while she hurts and I think that's The pattern we should engage in ourselves. But on to the last thing. I think she's also afflicted with a strange husband, and that's the most polite way I can put it. Um, he, he's a man of contradictions, as we've established. Good enough to, to faithfully worship the Lord in a relatively broken culture, but rebellious enough to practice uh, polygamy in his own home. And so we have finished with a good example of the good and bad here. Alright? And I'm going to call it arrogance. It's not all bad. It's not all arrogance. But just listen to this. Um, and Elkaniah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Uh, am I not more to you than ten sons. First, let's give him his due, all right? The text has told us that he sincerely loves Hannah, although, you know, quite a contradiction when you marry a second wife. Anyway, um, I think he's trying to express that here. Um, At least he noticed her pain, right? He's not completely oblivious to the emotions of his wife like some blockheads, all right? Um, Let's give him that, okay? Um, In some ways... His questions, albeit rhetorical, I think does indicate that he understands her pain. Um, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Well, he answers his own question. Am I not more to you than ten sons? I think by implication, he gets the fact that she desires to have a child. More importantly, she desires to have a son, and it hasn't happened. So he, he understands that barrenness is a big part of the problem here, and so we'll give him credit for that. But if I'm being totally honest, there's a lot he does wrong here too, all right? And so if if you came this morning, you didn't know you were going to come to a marriage class, we'll strap in just for a moment. We're going to have one real quick, just in a couple minutes. It's not going to last forever, all right? But this is very, very practical, I I believe. Um, First off, better translation of his rhetorical question, and why is your heart sad, is really more in in the Hebrew. um, Literally, why is your heart bad? Uh, it's, why, are you, why are you upset? What's wrong with you is kind of the way to read it. Now, again, he knows it's about having a child, but maybe he's implying you know, that you and Penn and I are not getting along as, as well as I would like, or maybe he's feeling some tension even toward him, or maybe he's questioning her relationship with God. We're not entirely sure why, but clearly he sees some, some tension there. And then he just kind of answers his own questions. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, let me speak bluntly to the men in the room. If you're married, don't ask your wives questions and then answer for them. Anybody follow me on the wisdom of that, men? okay? And, and ladies, I'm sure you would probably say it's one of my pet peeves. Don't ask me a question and then not give me time to share my answer with you, okay? Um, and that's what's happening in the text. Let her speak for herself. Let her answer. Listen to her. And, and I mean this sincerely. If you want to be broad in the mysteries uh, of your wife's heart and all that emotional intellect, which she typically has way more so than you do, slow down and, and let her answer and don't repeat Elkaniah's mistakes. We never see him give her a chance to talk back to him in that sense. She, I believe, clearly is questioning the core of her identity as a wife, as a mother, as a companion, the very essence of her life and future as a Jewish lady. But Elkaniah just plows right through you might say he's not asking the right questions but he's certainly not waiting for the answers to any of them and he winds up making this all about him it really is I know I've referenced everybody loves Raymond before if you want the classic example of what Elkaniah looks like Raymond is a good one okay if you ever watch that show Um, because his last statement is is kind of like one of those classic (laughs) examples from that, that show am I not more to you than ten sons well what's the implication there just think how arrogant and selfish this statement would sound if you're in Hannah's shoes. Elkaniah is implying that his love for her is more valuable than if she had ten sons. And that's just not fair. There's no indication, actually, that she doesn't love him, or that love is even in the question. Although, again, I would argue when you add that vixen pen and I to the marriage, you probably have messed up the whole love ratio Anyway, y'all aren't following me. But anyway, um, I think she would, it would be fair for her to say, you tell me that you love me, what's she doing here? You know, if we're being honest about the text. But anyway, uh, maybe that's just my self-editing. Uh, but this is a lot like a man telling his wife, well, you can't be upset about that lost job or some other adversity in your life because when you feel bad, it makes me feel bad. And I don't like to feel bad, so you need to get over it. That's really kind of what he's implying. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Buck up! You get to go home to the hill country of Ephraim with handsome Elkaniah and my second wife and all of her kids. But anyway, you're married to me. Get over it. That's what he's saying. Now, again, I... I didn't mean to teach a marriage class, but it's sort of right here. I think the principles are pretty low-hanging fruit. Elkaniah tries, but like lots of husbands, he just makes it all about him. And that never goes well. Now, fortunately, as we'll see next week, Hannah has someone better than her husband to run to. No, 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 she's not cheating on him. This is not, she's not compounding the problem. She's going to run to God jehovah god her creator her sustainer the lord of hosts as he's been introduced in this text and we shouldn't need her example to do the same so as our musicians come this morning let me just remind you of this we have a god that loves us and sees us and cares for us he knows our journey he knows our brokenness he knows our pain he knows our need if you have a situation weighing on your heart, like what Hannah was wrestling with, with with today, you can come to him. If you have some decision that needs to be made, if, if you've never asked him to save you and redeem you, you can come to him. You can come right where you're sitting, or you can come while we sing. Um, you can come down front and do business with him. Um, but one way or the other, let's remember he is the one who sees us and knows us and cares for us. Let's run to the Lord. Let's stand and respond to him.